0: Pro Se, Law Through 60's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson.
1: Hello, Amber.
0: And Haley Knopf.
1: Hey, hey. We got a hell of a show for you this week, but I did just want to say, and just sort of to provide a real-time update for everybody, it's four o'clock Eastern time on Thursday, and as of now, no current or former presidents have been criminally indicted, so that's (laughs) not what's on the docket for the show today. But I wanted to cover us at least. Something could happen in the next couple of hours. But where we sit right now, all living ex-presidents are walking as free men for now.
0: But never fear, listeners. We do have plenty of other stuff to talk about. That's not the only legal news, despite what what other media outlets make you true. think this week. We do have a really nice interview with Hannah Alborazi to talk about this interesting case about litigation funding and just how much control people that are paying for
2: a lawsuit get to have over things like settlements. It's a really, really fascinating case. I covered an earlier development in it. Definitely stick around for that. I'm excited to see where all that lands. But before we get into that, Alex, you've got you've got some some big law shenanigans for us.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, if you've listened to the show with any kind of regularity, you know we are suckers for Law firms suing attorneys who used to work there, or the other way around, honestly, uh, former lawyers suing their old law firms. And we got a real humdinger of a brawl going on in Texas right now where Littler Mendelssohn, which is one of the nation's most prominent labor and employment law firms, is in the middle of a very ugly feud with a former associate. And the firm is alleging that this woman stole. Thousands of confidential documents before eventually quitting her job there. And the firm has sued her to recover those files. And that's all pretty straightforward. But what makes this really interesting is that the attorney has launched this sort of social media campaign against Littler, saying that they are basically fabricating all these claims because she accused a senior member of the firm of abuse and bullying. And it's just getting, uh, it's getting very ugly and very public. So lots to uh, discuss.
0: There's always something a little bit ironic about labor and employment firms having employment problems of their own. Um, It's kind of proof that they can hit anybody, no matter how much you know about that area of the law. But what do we actually need to know about this dispute here?
1: Yeah. So at the center of this brewing storm is a former Littler attorney. Her name is Uliana Kozichuk. And she began working there in 2018, and she left in February. And according to the suit that was filed in Texas, Kozachuk violated the firm's policies by uploading thousands of confidential, both client materials and sort of internal firm documents to a personal Dropbox account while she was on medical leave. They informed her, again, this is all according to their complaint, they informed her that her uploads violated the firm's rules and placed her on administrative leave, and she then resigned from the firm two days after that. And in the suit, Littler, as you can imagine, is seeking an injunction that would empower third-party investigators to examine, identify, and remove any confidential documents from her Dropbox account and any of her personal devices. Uh, Littler also has said that, has told the judge in the case that Kozachuk, has quote made it her mission to harm uh, Littler Mendelssohn in a very in a very public way? Okay, well, do we know if that is in fact her mission? Well, I'm not inside her head, Haley, but she's not. <laughs> she's been very very vocal about her criticisms about the firm. As I said at the beginning, the fracas has spilled onto social media platforms like Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Uh, she actually uploaded her deposition in the case uh, and actually from what I could tell, said she wasn't recording it when she clearly was and has posted it to YouTube. Kozachuk has branded herself on these social media platforms as the Littler abuse survivor. And she's also gotten into the podcast game. You guys, she started a oh, podcast. No. She started a podcast called Time's Up Littler, which is meant to expose this purportedly toxic culture at the firm. I think sought out the podcast. It is behind a paywall, so I haven't listened to it, but there's only been two episodes so far. And, you know, as I said at the beginning, Kozachuk says that these document theft allegations have been completely invented by the company after she accused a shareholder there of abuse and bullying. And for its part, the firm said that it did look into those allegations when she was working there and found them to be, quote, unsupported. So, Thus far, the litigation is only focused on the document theft claims. That's the only thing that they're suing over right now. But an attorney for Littler wrote an email to Kozachuk basically hinting that a defamation claim could soon file if she keeps going on like this on these various social media accounts. And in that email, the uh, the attorney wrote, quote, Additionally, my firm has been retained in connection with your threats to systematically and publicly defame Littler Mendelssohn PC and its partners on podcasts and social media. Demand is hereby made that you immediately retract such threats. So they're all but threatening a defamation suit, though as we sit here today, one has not yet been filed.
0: I would imagine she has a vastly different take on what's going on and and the potential of a defamation suit. What does she have to say about her being outspoken at this point?
1: Yeah, well, she's got a lot to say and across many platforms do. She's got like this sort of very quirky TikTok presence. I watched a couple of those. And of course, I watched her entire deposition, like I said uh, today on YouTube. She has consistently maintained that she did all she did was back up her personal files to her own Dropbox account and that the firm is basically targeting her with this smear campaign. She told Law360 last week when we were reporting this out, she said, quote, Littler is trying to control the narrative by focusing the discussion on an alleged theft of documents, but I'm going to refocus the discussion through social media and a podcast. They are trying to turn the tables by accusing me of theft, so I'll forget my claims. She also says that she has returned all of the professional devices that she was given to the company and has complied with an order to turn over her accounts for forensic imaging, but... This uh, suit is only a couple of weeks old, and it will appear to be even more public than most public court filings, considering anytime there's a development, she's hopping on the mic and telling us all about it. So, lots to keep track of here, and uh, I'm very eager to see where it goes.
2: Well, let's turn now to a big case out of Delaware. So, this week, a Delaware judge heard arguments in Dominion Voting Systems' $1.6 billion defamation suit against Fox. This is, of course, that suit claiming that Fox News and its hosts knowingly broadcast false claims that Dominion helped rig the 2020 election in Joe Biden's favor. This has been an explosive case. I'm sure we've all seen scores and scores of headlines out of this one um, over the past couple of years, but now the court is actually poised to make a call on summary judgment bids from both sides here. I don't believe we've talked about this yet on Pro Se, um, but we've certainly been covering the heck out of it on Law360.com. The
1: Mothership.com. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
2: Yes. And, uh, you know, I I want to acknowledge up front that we've all been hit with too many headlines, perhaps, about this case. (laughs) But I thought this was actually a really good time for us to dig into it because one of our Delaware court reporters has been sitting in on the arguments— And in my esteemed opinion, we have some of the best reporting out there. Of course we do.
0: Of course we do. Yeah, I mean, I I think it is nice to jump in on this now because, like you said, there's sort of a lot of noise around this suit. There's a lot of little pieces to pick apart. And it'd be nice if we could sort of focus on what's the legal stuff actually
2: going on here. So maybe you can remind us of sort of how we got here. So Dominion filed this in March 2021, shockingly. If you'd asked me, I would have said this was filed like 10 years ago. It feels like it's been 10
1: years. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Dominion alleges that Fox defamed it with four specific lies here. That it had rigged the election, that it had used algorithms to manipulate vote counts, that it was owned by a Venezuelan company that had rigged elections for former Venezuelan President uh, Hugo Chavez, and that it had paid kickbacks to US officials who used Dominion's voting machines. So over the last year, the big headlines you've likely seen were uh, coming out of the discovery in this case. As filings got unsealed, we're learning more about depositions given by big names like Fox chairman, Rupert Murdoch, and email exchanges between hosts like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. One really big update came last month when Dominion unveiled a slew of internal communications and testimony showing that behind the scenes, Fox News folks were mocking and criticizing the stolen election claims. But according to Dominion, this was all while Fox News was continuing to treat those claims as legitimate on air. And also, we had some deposition testimony from Murdoch that was unsealed. And that showed that he thought Trump was a quote sore loser in the face of the 2020 election, but that he feared making himself an enemy of Trump because of his great following.
1: It was a fascinating look behind the scenes that a very controversial media company. It's in heavily in the zeitgeist, especially in this cultural and political moment. And Discovery can be a B, you know, for uh, if you're if you're in that position. Now what? What has Fox had to say? I mean, you said they're dueling summary judgment motions. So we know what Dominion is arguing here. What has Fox had to say about all these all these revelations and the and uh, the case it's making here?
2: Fox is really doubling down on a First Amendment defense here. It's arguing that Dominion's case is an attack on the free press and that it takes a really extreme view of defamation law. Fox has argued that a ruling in favor of Dominion would have grave consequences for journalism across the whole country. And it argued that Dominion is taking some of its executives and host statements out of context in an attempt to smear Fox.
0: Okay, I understand all of that, but we do have some action around summary judgment, right? So what's happened at that hearing?
2: Yeah, it was a two-day hearing, and Dominion's attorneys argued uh, essentially that they have enough evidence to demonstrate that this is not your usual defamation case. You know, defamation, we've talked about it quite a bit on the show. It's, It's a difficult one to nail down, right? But they say they've pointed to Fox News segments that contain actionable statements of fact for which Fox must be held accountable. And meanwhile, Fox's attorneys are arguing that the company shouldn't be involved in the case to begin with, because it, you know, it had these people, it had people like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell on the show who were perhaps speaking about these false election claims. But Fox is saying, well, we didn't know what they were going to say when we had them on our show, so that's not enough to establish defamation. Another thing I want to note, the judge overseeing the case warned both sides at the hearing um, against trying to slide in any last-minute live testimony. He was like, be careful, because I do not have the power to compel someone to show up at the trial, but I do have the power to prevent someone
1: from testifying. Interesting. So now we're just playing the waiting game here? Do we Are we leaning away, or what's going on?
2: We are. The judge took the motions under advisement, and he said that he would issue a written opinion or or rule from the bench soon, whatever that means. But we actually have plenty of other drama to follow while we wait for that decision. A Fox News producer who worked with some of the hosts named in the Dominion case has now sued the network, claiming that it and its attorneys pressured her to give evasive testimony. And then Fox turned around and sued her, saying that she can't be disclosing communications that she had with Fox's attorneys. However, the network actually abruptly dropped that suit earlier this week. So now we're just watching the producer's suit, but uh, yeah, plenty to keep our eyes on while we await this summary judgment decision.
0: Litigation funder Burford Capital promises it doesn't control the litigation it pays for, but a recent lawsuit accuses it of blocking a client from a reasonable settlement and raises questions about who really steers a lawsuit when an outside funder gets involved. Here to talk about it with us is Law360 reporter Hannah Alborazi. Welcome back to the show, Hannah. Thanks for having me. This dispute is so interesting to me. It really shines a light on the ways litigation funding can get pretty messy. So I want to start right from the beginning. How did it all begin? What is the suit that Burford Capital was
3: funding? So Cisco, which is the world's largest wholesale food distributor, you've probably seen their trucks on the highway. um, They've alleged for years that some of its suppliers, they've alleged uh, for years that some of its suppliers have been illegally fixing the price of various meats. Um, And that has caused Cisco and its customers to pay more than they should have Um, So Cisco says Burford Capital approached them in 2019 offering to partly fund their price fixing litigation. And as part of the deal, Cisco would retain control of the litigation and share any winnings from the antitrust cases with Burford Capital.
0: Those antitrust cases I know can be really expensive. I mean, I managed our competition wire for a while and the numbers are kind of eye popping. So how much was Burford putting up to, to bring this litigation?
3: Yeah, Cisco agreed to the arrangement and Burford agreed to fork over 140 million dollars to fund the litigation.
2: Wow. Yeah, that's no no small potatoes there, right? Yeah, it is really sprawling litigation, so I guess it kind of makes sense that it comes with with these massive price tags. But so what what exactly is Cisco saying went wrong?
3: Well, Cisco says that after years of litigation, it was ready to enter into settlements with some of these meat suppliers. Uh, but Burford found its financial settlements to be too low and tried to block them, according to Cisco. Uh, Cisco argues that Burford's behavior goes against public policies that prohibit financial investors like Burford from controlling a plaintiff's settlement decision-making, as well as public policy that favors parties reaching settlements more generally. Uh, So Cisco, they sued Burford in Illinois federal court claiming that Burford is ignoring laws and ethics rules and is forcing them to litigate against its will.
0: That's really interesting about the public policy part, because I think on the face of it, you know, we'll kind of get more into how Burford has responded, but on the face of it, it makes sense, right? That we don't want outside influences sort of tainting what goes on in the judicial system and making cases last longer, um, not reach settlements. That's really not the intent.
3: Yeah, and that actually like goes back that, idea goes back to ancient Greece and ancient Rome.
0: I love anytime we can get a reference to ancient Greece and ancient Rome. So that's right. <laughs> great on the First Day podcast. Yeah, no, but I mean, we have all of these notions of judicial economy and of the point of the system being to have two people who have a stake in what's going on be the only ones deciding the outcome of settlements.
3: That's right. Um, and But Cisco goes on. You know, they also say that Burford tried to improperly influence their outside counsel, who at the time was Boyce Schiller, um, and that they they were trying to get them to betray their duties to Cisco and instead assist Burford um, in, in blocking those settlements. You know, the lawsuit doesn't name Boyce Schiller as a party, and they the, the law firm denied those allegations.
2: So if I recall correctly, though, Burford has kind of, painted an entirely different picture of this dispute. What exactly are they saying is going on here?
3: Yeah, so Burford says that Cisco is at fault, that Cisco breached their original funding agreement when they assigned a portion of the claims to their customers, and that that shrinked any return that Burford was going to collect from its investment in the litigation. Burford's CEO, you know, told me that after Cisco breached that initial agreement, Cisco signed a restructured agreement. And that gave Burford the power to veto settlements. And that Burford used that power when they felt that the settlements were too low. But after that, Cisco and Burford found themselves at an impasse um, and they had to enter into confidential arbitration. Through the arbitration, Cisco was ordered to obtain Burford sign-off on any proposed settlements in the, in the price-fixing litigation. And that's how we've come to Cisco filing a complaint in Illinois against Burford, trying to vacate that order.
0: As you can tell with your explanation there, it's a pretty thorny dispute. But at the heart of it, these questions about how much control a litigation funder can exert, And whether a contract that the parties enter into is the final word on where to draw that line, I think is really interesting. Can you tell us more about that debate? I know you talk to a lot of people who follow litigation funding closely and have weighed in on sort of where that line should be.
3: Yeah, this is really, I think, the first case where we're seeing in public this dispute. And Cisco says the arbitration order violates fundamental public policies underlying our judicial system. Those public policies are designed to empower plaintiffs to keep control of decision-making. And there are also state champerty laws that prohibit third-party funders from controlling the litigation they invest in. So the question that has emerged is, does Cisco have a right to control its own litigation if it signed that right away in a contract with Burford?
0: And you know, that's, first of all, love the word champerty. That's not used every day. So that's a great great (laughs) one to know on my legal list of terms. But it is very interesting about, you know, can you take that right and just give it away? Or is it too important to the overall judicial system to be signed away in a contract?
3: Yeah. I talked to a lot of people about this case. um, And one of the most outspoken critics of litigation funding generally is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which, as you know, Represent some of the largest US corporations. Um, And since plaintiffs and plaintiff's law firms are really the main recipients of litigation funding, the chamber and its members, understandably, are worried that as litigation funding industry grows, it will prompt more plaintiffs to bring more lawsuits against more corporations. Um, And so the chamber, they argue that Cisco's case is the perfect example of how parties can be held hostage by litigation funders. They want the federal rules of civil procedure to be changed to require disclosure of these types of litigation financing arrangements at the outset of civil litigation. Um, They say it's just as insurance agreements are required to be disclosed on the defense side. But as it stands right now, litigants in most US jurisdictions, they don't have to disclose whether they're receiving funding from a litigation financer.
0: So presumably since they don't have to disclose a, a party could be far down the litigation pathway and then realize their settlements are being turned down because a litigation funder
3: is blocking it, correct? That's right. Yeah, I mean we have no idea how often litigation funders take control over the cases they invest in. This is just the first time it's in the public sphere.
0: Right, it's been very black box about all of this and sort of where we stand with how these arrangements
2: are working. Do we have a sense of how Burford feels about these calls for disclosure?
1: Yeah,
3: Burford's CEO told me he thinks the chamber's demands for disclosure are a big ploy. And it's because their members want to obtain a tactical advantage in litigation. And he argues that the chamber just wants to keep an unlevel playing field that advantages their members. And that litigation funding helps plaintiffs who are usually not corporations.
0: And all the people you talked to about this case, I'm really interested since people are really watching this one, if there's a sense of how it might go. I mean, is Cisco looking like they might prevail in this with their public policy arguments? Or is Burford maybe in the better position here? Do you have any sense of that?
3: Yeah, it's um I didn't get anyone that I felt like was predicting what was going to happen here. And I don't I mean it's really hard to say, right? It's Cisco just filed an amended complaint that lays out a host of new communications between Burford and Cisco's counsel. And so the question is, you know, will Cisco be able to convince the court that it should vacate this order, this rather unusual arbitration order that prohibits it from signing settlements without approval from its litigation funder? And we just don't know. We don't know if they'll, maybe they'll settle with Burford.
0: Obviously, there's going to be a lot to watch here, particularly since these cases are so rare that we get a spotlight on what exactly is going on with this funding. Hannah, I really appreciate you talking about it with us today. Great chatting with you. That'll wrap up today's show. Thanks for being with me today, Alex.
1: It was a joy as always. Thank you, Amber.
0: And also, Haley. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader, our guest this week, Hannah Albarazzi, and our contributing reporters, Lynn Leroux, Lauren Berg, Jeff Montgomery, and Catherine Marfin. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Mercano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us five stars in a written review. That's what helps other folks find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we talked about, that's when you go over to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.